Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we rewind back to October the 13th, 2015, so around seven and a half years ago, eight years ago almost. It's kind of crazy to think about 2015 being seven years ago, isn't it? Anyway, this episode was called The Great Recession That Will Never End, and I would say that today it sounds an awful lot like a current events episode. Like, let's talk about what's going on right now. It, because so much of what's in it has come to pass. And I wanted to kind of give you a new way to listen to this episode. Because I, I re-listened to about half of it as I was doing all my prep work to get out of here with rewinds. And I, I realized that something in it may not be totally clear when I say the Great Recession that will never end. I am going all the way back. Not just to 2008, but I'm going all the way back to like the late 90s, early 2000s, all the way into the future, is all being part of the Great Recession. It may be hard to understand because we've had good times and bad times throughout that period, which is now shocking to say more than two decades long. Right? But I think that we have this whole off-the-cliff mentality that until the, whole, until the bus goes over the cliff and all the children fall out the windows and it catches on fire, it, it's not really a crash, right? But if you think about that analogy, if the bus is going to go off the cliff, there was a point where the driver made a critical error, and long before you saw the bus go off the cliff, the bus was going to go off the cliff. And when we're talking about something like a global economic hegemony that is the United States of America then the time between that critical error and going off that cliff is a lot longer and 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 the you know the the, uh, the person making a counter argument would say well the longer that you have before you go off the cliff the more time you have to do something about it that may be true but nobody's doing anything to keep us from going off the cliff rather kind of the theme that I've been on this year up till now and I'll probably stay on it for quite a while is when you have an empire in collapse there's plenty of things that the people that are in charge could be doing that would actually either foresaw or maybe even stop the collapse. The problem is that all of those things are about actually fixing the problems and seeing to the needs of the people who live in that empire, that nation state, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're comfortable with. But... At the point that you get to this critical component in history, every single, every single empire that's ever existed, every single great nation that's ever existed, every single republic that's ever existed that's ended up in this place, it's always the same story. The people in power, fearing losing their power, put all of their effort into maintaining power, which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of eventually losing all their power. That's how it works. So the, the, the concept of self-preservation takes over among the power elite and the wealthy. And the, everybody's decision-making is parsed with, but if I do that, will I get reelected? But if I do that, will we eliminate this department that I, I oversee? But if we do that, will my power decline? 
But if we do that, how will all of the people that spent money to get me elected feel about it? But if we do that, how will all of the friends that I have who who make my life really easy every day, how will they feel about it? What would happen if the people took over and then what would happen to me? Oh, I can't have that happen. So everything goes to maintaining power. And that's the that's the point we we and that's why I say if historians are honest and not all of them are, but if we have any honest historians that look back at the economic turmoil that we're in the middle of right now and look at this period of time and it may end up being by the time it's all said and done with a 50-year cycle. But if they look back and they say what really happened? They're not going to say, well, in 2023, the U.S. started involving itself in foreign wars again, and this eventually bankrupted the nation as they pushed China and Russia together into their own hegemony along with the other BRICS nations, and the dollar lost its reserve status. That may, You might get to that paragraph eventually. But it's going to start with probably in 1971, the United States left the gold standard. And it's going to go through all of these decades in between, the 70s, the stagflation that came out of that, the Reagan's you know, mourning in America, and the largest tax increase that has ever happened in the United States that was you know, marketed as saving Social Security. It'll go through the Clinton years. It'll talk about retroactive taxes, where Bill Clinton actually raised income tax in the past. Right, and created a fake surplus. It'll go through the wasted two decades of war in Afghanistan and Iraq. It will, it will be all of these things. I, I'm not saying that that's how it will be recorded in history, because there's a pretty good track record of people that want to control society altering history to suit their agenda. And the agenda here is very clear. On that note, this episode was the first time I ever went really deeply into a movie. Uh, called Harrison Bergeron, which was a made-for-showtime movie that aired in the 90s. It was an award-winning film that was really memory-hold because I think it hit too close to home. And it talks about something called the Great Recession and peaking in the year 2018. And I say in this episode, and I think it's probably about a, a, a good prediction still uh, seven and a half years later, that if we had changed the dialogue that you'll hear when this all starts up, this actual segment of the movie, to from 2018 to 2028, I think it might be so perfectly spot on that it would be frightening. And in this movie, if you've never heard me talk about it before or never heard it before, people walk around wearing these bands around their head. And the bands emit an electromagnetic signal. And it disrupts the ability of people to think. And the goal is basically to bring everybody to the level of, let's say, a C student. That if you're too smart, they turn your band up. And if you're really, really stupid, well, we just, you know, we just let you limp by. You know, maybe you don't need a band at all if you're really that stupid. To the point where people actually, if you think of like a drug house, where people go to a drug house to get high. Like, there's a scene in this movie where Harrison goes to... Um, like I don't remember what they call them now, like a mental house, like a, a brain house or something, where without your band on, you play chess. 
to actually be challenged intellectually. And the real overriding theme through it all is equity over equality. Equality is something we'll never achieve, but it's a noble goal. It is for every person to be judged on the same criteria and to have results commensurate with their effort. Now, we'll never have true equality. That's a myth. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, fiction, I guess you could call it, a wonderful fiction. But there is no doubt that a person who is a billionaire will have a better chance defending themselves in court than somebody who's penniless. I don't care what we do to try to create that equality, that inequality will exist. But at least it's a noble pursuit. And then there is equity. And equity is where, regardless of ability, talent, and effort, people are guaranteed the same result, or at least a baseline result. That's equity. And look around at what's going on in society right now. Everything is a push to equity. And the reality is you will never push people who are lazy, intellectually slow, untalented, unimaginative, up to the level of people who are. You'll never do it. So the only thing you can do is drag down, criticize, berate, ostracize, censor, and ban the exceptional, the truly exceptional. Notice I said the exceptional, not the elite. Or wall them off into their own little areas where you use them to develop technologies and things like that. And at the same time, since we don't actually have dumbed-down bands in, re in the way they are in the movie, I'll get back to that in a second, you artificially promote people based on criteria that you come up with that says they've been marginalized or underserved or not taken care of or uh, been prejudiced against or what have you. So it starts out with, well, we need somebody of this particular race or gender in this position, so you put somebody in there completely unqualified. <laughs> you know what I mean? Completely unqualified for the job. Totally unqualified for the job. Wildly unpopular for the job. But you do it anyway so you can say, we did the thing. Then you start promoting people into positions of real power and real authority and real importance who have absolutely zero qualifications, and you keep looking for more and more supposedly marginalized people. Like someone who has to tell you what their pronouns are. And th that is a push to equity. In the movie, Harrison Bergeron, equity is achieved by dumbing down anybody who's too, perceived as being too smart. And it's done with this band, again, around the head. And when you perform a little bit too well, your grades start slipping there, Harrison, from a C up to a B+. Plus. We send you back to the doctor, and we turn up the frequency to try to dumb you down even a little bit further. And if that doesn't work, well, maybe we wall you off in a place where the smart people go. They're just a little bit too smart. Feeling a little bit close to home yet? Now, what, pray tell, would the bands be that are around the head? What, what analog do we have? Well, this, this whole story comes from the 60s, written by an author known, named Kurt Vonnegut. And the 60s, of course, TV was becoming widespread. And every house had a TV or two in it. People even had color TV by now. And that was what he was talking about. That's what the metaphor was. We use TV to dumb you down. Now we use TV. We use all the streaming services. We use YouTube. We use Instagram. We use TikTok, etc. Dumb, 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 dumb you down. Make you worry about shit that doesn't matter, shit that's pointless. 
while the elite wall off the people that they actually see as useful to them and set up a system of complete control and the entire economy crumbles around it and they don't really care because no matter whether the economy is good or bad, they will always be okay. The Great Recession that will never end. And I don't know if never end was really the right title for this. The Great Recession that will never end. Will there be an end to it? I guess. At some point. There'll be a new cycle. A new thing. A new macro cycle. A new mega cycle. The fourth turning will complete. But when I say never end at the time, I meant... For all practical purposes, if a recession goes on for 40 or 50 years, it's a never-ending recession. I think we're sitting in the middle of such a thing right now. With that, let's go ahead and rewind back. October the 13th, 2015. Originally, episode 1659, The Great Recession That Will Never End. And remember, you can always help support this show and the work that we do just by starting your online shopping where? tspaz.com. All right, with that, let's go ahead and... uh, Get into the main topic of today's show. I'm in a pretty good mood, uh, given what I'm about to tell you. Um, let me start out with something I don't usually do. It's reading the show notes to you as though it was a script. Here's what I have today. The green shoots have taken root. The recession of 2008 is gone forever. Recovery is here. I'd like to believe that. I would also like to believe that Santa and the Easter Bunny will bring me stuff. But, well, you know how that goes, right? What we are actually seeing right now is a larger divide between the haves and have-nots, not the class warfare haves and have-nots that are really just a shield for the elite. This is due to a shift, a shift in technology, collective psychology, and insistence on clinging to a past paradigm that is dying. The following is from the movie Harrison Bergeron. Name is given to the period that started with the end of the Second World War and ended with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Mars. Uh, the Cold War? Right. And what do we call the period after the Cold War? The Great Recession. And what made this recession different from all other recessions before it, Jeannie? Uh, well, it never really ended. It just kept going. Why? Garth? I forget. Bridget? Class? Anyone? Harrison? I don't remember. It's all right. Go ahead. Well, in all previous recessions, once the economy bottomed out and production increased, unemployment decreased. Um, But in the Great Recession, because of new and improved technologies, uh, fewer and fewer workers were required in all sectors. Uh, With so many people forced from their jobs, the traditional economic recovery was impossible. Exactly. By the year 2018, only 15% of the population had jobs. America was divided into two camps, a highly skilled and educated prosperous elite and an unemployed, destitute majority. What happened next? Garth. Well, the people who didn't have jobs were very unhappy, and they started making trouble, like they'd bomb buildings and have riots and kill people and stuff. Right. And that was the beginning of what we now know as, class? The Second American Revolution. Right. And we'll stop there for today. I I want you to think about what you just heard. And let me ask you honestly, how prophetic would this sound if you just change one thing in the whole exchange? The year 2018 to, say, the year 2028. 
and just move out the prediction only 10 years forward. And mind you, this movie was made in 1996. Now, if you've not seen this movie, I posted about it before. It is an intense movie. It is an adaptation of a short story written by Kurt Vonnegut in the 60s. But the movie goes way beyond the short story. The short story is very short and way lacking in the details that the movie is. So the movie is true to the concept of the original, but it's not true to the storyline of the original. And whoever wrote the screenplay to this movie is a freaking genius. This movie, I believe, was buried. This this movie has some big actors in it. Harrison is uh, played by Sean Austin from the movie Rudy, and Christopher Plummer plays like the big bad guy, right? Who's actually supposedly not really the bad guy, but he is the bad guy. And uh, Howie Mandel's in this movie. It was made for Showtime in 1996. It won multiple awards, and then it just disappeared. You can't get it on DVD. It's not on Netflix. It's not on Amazon Prime. Um, and, and the reason I say this is I could I could do a whole show just on this movie, and maybe I should someday, because it is a frightening look at our at our desire to homogenize humanity. But I only wanted to put, so I just wanted to give you that. So if you've not seen this movie, you're looking for something to watch some night, just go on YouTube, search for uh, Harrison Bergeron, and look for the 1996 full version of it, and you can watch it on YouTube. It's not the best resolution, but it's all we have right now. I've downloaded a copy from YouTube. If they ever take it down, I'll keep putting it back up until there's no chance to get it down. I did buy a VHS of it. I'm looking to convert that to a, like a higher quality DVD, but I, I don't really know how to do that, so... Somebody can help me. I'll make you a deal. If anybody out there can do that, if I can send you a VHS tape and you can make a good DVD copy out of it, I'll send you the, the thing. You make me a copy, send it back. You keep the VHS and make one for yourself. No, I'll just throw that out there. Anyway, um, if, you, if you look at this, though, the, the Great Recession happened after the end of the Cold War. They're not specific about exactly when the Great Recession started, but it's interesting that we did call the recession of 2008, 2009 the Great Recession. But I would like to present to you the concept that maybe the Great Recession actually started just a little bit after the time of this movie. This movie is 1996. We all remember the, the dot-com bust, 99-2000, and we all remember things like the Enron scandal, uh, Tyco. I mean, all of these things that plummeted the economy multiple times, and it continued to bounce back up. But, you know, then we went through... Another down cycle in, in the mid-2000s, Obama came in at the, at the beginning of this recession, and we had a huge down cycle and hit, hit a bottom as far as the market goes in 2009. And, and now we're told, you know, we were told a couple years later the green shoots were showing, but then we officially were in a recession again in 2012. It's like a recession cycle. And if you actually go look at the stock market's performance over the last 20 years, what you'll see is that every run up, was steeper and more dramatic in its climb upward, but every drop down was steeper and deeper in its drop down. So the higher we go, the worse the fall. And you could say that's always been the case, but it really hasn't. If you look at the stock market, other than the Great Depression, dramatically stable. In fact, the stability of the market from about 1920 all the way up until the 1980s is what all of the booming financial advisors, who were really relationship salespeople, used to sell people on the concept of investing in the 90s and the 2000s. Look how stable, look how predictable. 
And now we have this ish, boom, 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 boom. Well, what's really going on there? See, we've been misled to believe if the Dow Jones stock market is a good number, if the S&P 500 is a good number, if it's up for the year, we're okay. If it's down for the year a little bit, we're sort of okay. And if it's down a lot, we have a problem. This is not how the economy works. This is how a game, a casino gambling game, that sucks valuation from the companies that the original concept was designed to fund works. The economy works with me and you, and our spending, our purchasing, our saving. That, that's, that's what drives an economy, and the construction and development of new products and services. That's the economy. The, the, the majority of our economy isn't even in the stock market. I didn't say the majority of our money, but the majority of our economy is not in the stock market. That'll make sense to you by the end of today's show if it doesn't right now. But we actually have to ask ourselves, what is a recession? What is a recession? What is the textbook version of a recession? Well, if I wanted to sound like a grad student or something, I'd say it's a significant decline in the activity across an economy lasting longer than a few months. It's... Visible in industrial perf- blah, 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 Okay? What it actually is, when the, when the people come out and say, we are officially in a recession, is when we have a decline in the economy over a six-month period. We It could be 0.1%, and they call it a recession. There's an importance, because remember I said psychology was at play here? And we'll get into that in a minute. But just understand that. that if the if the overall economy declines for two quarters or six months, we're now officially, according to all the talking heads, in a recession. And what does it mean for the future and blah, blah, blah. Okay, So to understand that, we have to determine, well, how do we know, how do we know, If the economy has gone down 1% or 2% or gone up 1% or 2%, what what is the metric that tells us that? Well, we just know because everybody's happy and working, and no, no, that's not it. Usually when a recession is announced, most people are happy and dumb and stupid and don't know they're in the middle of one. So think about this now. you got to think about this. When they come on the TV and say, we are officially in a recession, okay, What that means is we've been in one for six months. But nobody goes apeshit until the psychology impact of the announcement of it being a recession. And everybody starts freaking out. What is the next quarter going to do? Okay, So where do we get that number from? We get it from GDP, the gross domestic product of our nation. How much money was spent in this country? There's a bunch of textbook ways to define GDP, but in the end... How much was produced and paid for? How much money moved? The more money that moves, the healthier we are. If uh, $20 trillion was spent in one, one year, then we better be spending $21 trillion in the next. 5% growth, everybody's happy. But if we spend 19.5, not good enough. Now, that's way low. Okay? But it's just, it's just to try to get your head around this, right? That's, that's all it is. It's GDP. So the problem with this is we've used GDP for decades to make this determination. They keep changing how to calculate it. And which way do you think they change it? Do you think they change it so that it's a, it's a tougher metric? No, they always say that. Do you think they change it so it's a more accurate metric? No. 
They change it in ways that will make it look better than it is because of the psychology. So before I get into the psychology, let's just talk about a couple changes that were recently made to GDP. One involves retirement plans and pension plans. So you got to understand that a whole lot of people in this country still have pensions, real honest-to-God pensions. If you are in the military or most government sectors as a full-time employee, you still have a pension plan, okay, with air quotes around it. Now, what happens is, let's say you work for the city of Dallas, and you get a certain amount of vesting in your pension every year till you retire. So every year, your the city puts down on the books a promise to pay you a certain amount of money at retirement. And this will be usually, you know, explained as X dollars per month. And that number increases, increases, increases. Now you can lose it if you, you know, get, you're fired or you go early before you, you've earned permanent vesting. But every year, the, the amount of the promise goes up. Commensurate with that, the city takes some money and puts it into investment vehicles. They buy other cities' bonds. They put it in cash reserves. They even buy things like mutual funds and other municipal bonds to fund your retirement. They don't just put cash in a lockbox because they would never have enough money when you retire to pay you. So they have all the employees contributing and a certain percentage withdrawing just like Social Security, okay? This is like Social Security minor. And the hope is that there'll be enough appreciation in the, the account to pay you If we also include that the city's gotten bigger, we have more employees, we have more contributions, we take some of their money, we put it in as a reserve, we take some of their other money, and we use it to pay you a pension. Gee, that sounds like a Ponzi scheme, but I digress. What has counted as a GDP number from that little scenario in the past has been if the city of Dallas put away $1,000 for you this year and stuck it into that account then that was $1,000 for the GDP, all right? What they've changed it to is that $1,000, let's say, represents $10,000 in your retirement, 10-time increase, your young employee. That number now goes into GDP. They put $1,000 in, they put $10,000 into GDP. Multiply that by everybody with a pension in this country and that being done over and over again. And what happens? You have a 0.2% loss in the first quarter of 2015 to the GDP, and it's gone. It, or actually 2014 is when that happened. It's gone. We have like a 0.2% gain. Nothing changed. We just changed the way we calculate the number so the psychology stays stable. Here's another thing that they've done. Traditionally, the GDP and the contribution from government spending, specifically the Department of Defense, has gone down as it's spent. So Department of Defense spends X in in quarter one, Y in quarter two, Z in quarter three, and A in quarter four. Quarter four has historically been one of the largest quarters for any government spending in any sector because use it or lose it is the mantra. So whatever money you have left in your budget, when you're coming into the fourth quarter, you've got to spend that before the year's out or your department loses it. The first quarter, everybody's trying to figure shit out. Nobody's quite sure what's going on yet. Sometimes you have a new Congress coming in. There's holes up with budget. So the first quarter is notoriously small. So what they decided to do is now what we'll do, we'll just project what the entire year's spending is going to be. Divide it by four and evenly assign it to each quarter. 
this doesn't sound so bad. It evens out GDP, creates this, stops this wavy up and down thing. But again, back to the psychology. The first thing about this is the problem is there's no guarantee that that's actually going to be how much they spend. You got it? There's no, there's no guarantee that that's actually how much they'll spend in a given year. There could be a cut. I know it doesn't happen often, but it happens. Money could get held up. Uh, there could be a shortfall. All kinds of things that could prevent the Department of Defense from spending exactly as much as the, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, says it's going to be spending as of January 1. But let's just say the people in government are just crack accountants and they're really good with money. Okay. And they get the number bang on accurate. Well, what happens then is money that would be spent in the third and fourth quarter, as, as, as spending ramps up toward the, the second cycle of the year, gets moved into the reporting for the first and second. This does two things. One, you can't rob Peter to pay Paul. So the numbers in the third and fourth quarter will be pulled down from their real numbers, while the first and second quarter will be elevated from their real, real numbers. But what else it does is the psychology. If you have a first quarter number come in, and that comes in somewhere in the middle of the second quarter before the numbers actually come out, and it says the first quarter we had loss. We had a loss. A decrease and economic activity. Everybody starts to worry a little bit. Everybody pulls back just a little bit. When everybody pulls back a tiny bit, it doesn't take much to pull down the GDP a tenth or two tenths of a point. And when we're measuring growth now in portions of a point, that can be the difference between a gain or flat or a loss. So by artificially inflating the first and second quarter, we retain confidence in Americans to keep pissing away money and in corporations to keep investing money, even though it may not be founded. Because as soon as everybody hears the first quarter's down, they immediately think this way. Shit, if the second quarter's down, they're going to say it's a recession. When they say it's a recession, everybody's going to panic. When everybody panics, they're going to drive the third quarter down. Jeez, October is when all the freaking stock market crashes are. Oh. <sighs> Then we're heading into the, the Christmas season and the spending, and if the spending doesn't come, then we end up flat into the new year, and next thing you know, February sucks. We gotta lean out this company now, so we're prepared to deal with this. So they lean out the company, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we're lying to you for your own benefit. It's the white lie. When you start to understand that, you, you, the real lesson there is how fragile the system is. There's something like two tenths of a point can swing the entire mood of an economy. Because where where the value comes from? It's our willingness to spend, invest, work, earn, and transfer wealth that drives this GDP thing. It's not really government. Government just keeps record of it and steals money so that they can contribute to it by using your money and spending it. And by using the money that your children will earn in the form of debt to spend it today. Your children have to pay it back tomorrow. We all know this, nothing radical there, except that that little tiny thing, a person saying something differently, can actually swing the economy to a false positive or false negative. That's how weak our whole her global economy works that way now. The entire developed world's economies work the same way. And they're all doing it. India's changing the way they calculate GDP. Do you think they're doing it so the number will go down or be more accurate or honest? Or do you think they're doing it so it looks a little bit better to control the psychological thing? So now the next thing we have to say is, okay, if the economy is that fragile, if that little nudge to psychology 
can create such a ripple effect. What would happen if we lost 2% of our jobs every year for the next 10 years? See, now, I'm doing what I just got on the government for doing. I'm, but I'm, I'm saying this is a phenomenon that will accelerate. Right? So I'm, I'm being very conservative with what I'm doing, though. I'm saying that every year from 2016, start January 1, 2016, to January 1, uh, 2026, for those 10-year decade, every year on average, technology will, will take away 2% of existing jobs. Just 2%. Do you know what happens Well, first you have to figure out how many jobs there are in America. And I, I did the calculation with the actual number. It was something like 133 or 138 million, somewhere in there. 130-odd million. And I just did times 0.98%, because that's how much it would be left if you took away 2%. And I went equals, 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 equals 10 times. The number I got was just a hair over 26 million. 26 million jobs eliminated. If we only lose 2% of them a year... The technological innovation at a time when technological innovation is moving faster than ever before. And then this is the scary number. Let's be really conservative and say the population of this country, of working age Americans, doesn't change by one between now and 2026. There's zero population growth. If the current unemployment number of 5% was accurate, And we took into account the loss of 26 million jobs over that 10-year period. The reported un unemployment rate would become 23% by 2026. If you think that's far-fetched, I want you to think about it. Is it possible that out of every 100 jobs, technological innovations will have a net consumption of two per year over the next 10 years. Does that, does that even begin to challenge what you think is possible? I mean, because if it's, if it's one in a hundred jobs, right? And it's a net, so when I say a net consumption, what I mean is, okay, technology does create new jobs and new opportunities and things like that. So if the technology actually takes 10 jobs, but eight are created, it's a net loss of two. You got it? Okay, now, those eight new jobs are probably better, higher-paying jobs that do more for the person that's employed than a person that lost their job. That's true. But it's still a net loss of two. We cut it in half to one, okay? Then uh, we're still looking at an unemployment rate. I didn't calculate that one, so give me a second. It's not exactly half because there's 5% existing, 14%. And that's if we're honest about what unemployment is. Now, we have to start thinking about a lot of other things. If we're going to be honest about how how many people don't have a job in this country, and remember, what we're trying to do is we get to this, uh, you know, eighty percent people are unemployed from Harrison Bergeron. Okay, well, how about this? No kids have jobs in general. I'm going to say an under fifteen, right? And and no retired people. Now, a lot of retired people are working, but most people once they go to full retirement, they start drawing Social Security. It doesn't pay to work anymore. So they exit the system. Now, there's also an entire group of people who never entered the system right now. There's an entire group of the millennial population that are in their 20s. <clears throat> They've never held a job. Ever. I don't think people realize how many people that are under 24 right now have never held 
a single job. Okay? If you've never held a job, you are not calculating an unemployment number. And if you've held a few part-time jobs and stuff, but never enough to draw unemployment compensation, you are not counted in the unemployment number. So ask yourself, how many of our young people under 30 right now, between 20 and 30, have never held a job long enough to officially have entered the workspace to be calculated the unemployment number? Well, you'd have to at least double the 5% to 10 well, I'll put up a link to you for today uh, in, in uh, today's show notes. But in 2014, Forbes calculated the real rate of unemployment at 15.8%. That, that's what it would really be right now. Well, then a 2% net consumption of, of existing employment would result in an unemployment rate 10 years from now of 33%. Now, now here's the thing about an unemployment rate of 33%. If you actually get there, it can't stop. It can't stop. There's too many people that no longer are consumers, so you can't have production compensate. Do you understand that? There's no way you get to a 30% unemployment rate and stay there, and that's the bottom. Especially if you continue to innovate away jobs. There's a way to do it, but it's to create jobs that aren't jobs, which is what the government's done right now. Because there's a whole other group of people not in the unemployment numbers. I'll tell you who else is not considered on unemployment. Now, the Forbes article takes into case uh, things like this. You have a job, you lose it, you go on unemployment, you get two years of unemployment, sometimes with extensions more. Eventually, your unemployment wears out. Once you stop collecting unemployment, the government says you're no longer unemployed even though you still don't have a job because they're not paying you unemployment. But what about people that the government pays money to every month? Every month? The generational welfare recipient or anybody on what you would consider permanent or semi-permanent government assistance. In other words, a program is not going to run out. It's not trying to help you get a job. You're on disability. You're on general welfare, what have you. And you're receiving money every month to simply exist. And there's no intention to ever force you to get a job for whatever reason and get you off of it. You do not count as unemployed. In fact... There's actually a valid, as crazy as that sounds, there's a valid reason for it. But when we actually take into account all the people old enough to hold a job that are not retired, the best number we can come up with for the actual unemployment rate, uh, rate comes from shadow stats. Shadow stats by John Williams is the, about the only set of truly accurate numbers, and I won't go into how, but if you dig through the calculator, everything's open book with, with, with Williams' site. Excel spreadsheets you can download, you can look at, you can, you can audit anything that's produced. Their official number for unemployment as of August 2015 is 22.9%. 22.9%. If we add that to a 2% net job consumption by uh, technology over the next 10 years. 2026, you're looking at a true unemployment number of 41%. That's halfway to what this stupid movie claimed would happen by 2018. And again, you, 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 you can't conceive of a world where it would stop there unless there's a radical transformation in the way that we do things. Now, remember how I said, right, in, in essence, it's really true that the people that, you know, are on permanent assistance, the welfare mamas, etc., are not unemployed? Well, they don't do anything productive. That, that's true. But effectively, as far as the economy is concerned, they are employed. Why? They have income. 
They have the best kind of income a government can ever bank on, guaranteed income. Of course, the government's paying it, but they don't care because it's not their money. It's your money or your kid's money or your grandkid's money that they ain't earned yet. I mean, because you got to start understanding the totality of government assistance that goes in. You have a woman, say three kids, don't care how she ended up that way. It could be a legitimate way, illegitimate way, I don't care, on her own. Maybe her husband lives with her, but he's not really her husband, so he doesn't count. Maybe she really is on her own. Maybe she really needs the assistance. Maybe she doesn't. I'm not making a moral value judgment of the individual here. I'm just going to give you the numbers, some of the numbers. So she gets a certain amount of money every month. She also gets a phone every month, you know, a certain portion of a phone pay for every month. She gets food stamps to buy food with, and she gets a place to live. Now, this place that she lives in, she might pay 29 bucks a month for or 40 bucks a month for or something like that. Okay, they'll make her pay something out of the money that they give her. But the government pays the landowner, say, $800 a month for that place. Well, that's real money. I mean, it's fake money in the way that we describe, you know, creating money out of thin air. But in the end, inside our economy, that's real money. There's no difference between the government giving that guy it or her giving it to them. Just she doesn't, she's not, doesn't act as an intermediary anymore. Effectively, she's generating $800 a month of spending to live in a house. Technically, all of these people that are receiving government money for the sole function of existing, and again, no moral value judgment on the individuals. It is what it is. Are technically, as far as the economy is concerned, employed. They have income, it gets spent. But how much can you do that before you break the production back of the donkey, right? The donkey pulling this weight is you and me, the producers in this country. How much can you, can you do of that before we give out and we add corporate welfare to that? And I won't go into all that today, but it outweighs the general welfare. We give more welfare to corporations than we do to baby mamas. It's class warfare if you think we don't. Okay, it's all fake spending. It's all recycled money. It all it, it, it's all an illusion designed to perpetuate a faith that will make people continue to leverage their futures today in the form of debt. And that drives every bit of our economy. Our economy cannot function any other way unless it changes. Here's the thing. It's also getting to a point where it can't function that way anymore. So change is going to become required. We're not going to live in a world with 80% unemployment. We're not. Because society is not going to survive that. And any organism is going to seek survival, including collective organism like humanity. We'll change the way we do things. But there's going to be massive disruption during that change, a decade or two or three. And there's, there's a potential now for there to be a whole lost generation. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if it's the millennials or their kids. Or their kids. Instead of a fourth turning this time, you may have a fifth. You may have a fifth. It all depends on how this plays out, how long the illusion holds together, and how long the illusion can be held together under the economic reality that's under the carpet. Again, I want to point out that my number of 2% net jobs lost is low. 
All we have to do is just look at a few things that are just starting to happen. Right now, if you go to Chili's, you'll see a really happy waitress training her replacement with no idea that's what she's doing. You'll see a little kiosk on your table, and all it rates you do right now is order more drinks and pay your tab. But she's saying, you can use that. I'll bring you another margarita. Okay. Okay. And she has no idea that it's just being put there long enough to get customers. Because if you just put that in there now and no waiter came until you used it and you had one waiter doing the job of five, basically as a food runner, you, you, the customer would be object to it right now. What, what they've done is they've taken the two things that are most annoying as a customer at a restaurant. Okay. If you're a server, you need to understand, this is why your job's being destroyed. The two most annoying things servers do, they don't check on tables to see if everybody needs another round of drinks at the right time. What they do is they come out, they give you drinks, they take your order, they ask if you want more. It's too quick. They bring the food out, your round of drinks is empty, they should have been there five minutes before the food came out to take your next round of drink order. Okay? I don't care whether you think people should drink or not, I don't care if it's gin or iced tea. It's just the way it works out with people communicating with each other, having dinner, and exchanging ideas and thoughts, and how fast people consume beverages. Now, th that's a little one, though. That one usually gets worked out. Servers vanish after the meal has been served. Everybody's had that second or third round of drinks, and everybody seems to be happy. And what do you want to do? You want to freaking leave the restaurant. You're tired of being, I'm done now. I'd like my check. Where's my server? I don't freaking know. And I end up having to get somebody else to say, could you go find my waiter to bring me my check? Not at Chili's. I don't like Chili's food. I really don't. I think it's, it's, I think it's terrible and it's gotten worse over the last 10 years. But boy, I like the convenience that when I want to pay, I go pay now, slide my car, boom, put the tip on there. I'm not even see, I'm not even going to give you a good tip. You know why? I'm not pissed that I've been sitting here for 20 minutes after my food's gone waiting for you to bring my check. So, The restaurant industry is using the technology currently to address the two biggest complaints of the customer. Where are you when I want more of something? And where are you when I want my check? What was this, what this is designed to do? Don't think this is like, oh, that's just to patch the hole. No. This is so you'll accept the technology. This is where you start going, this thing's awesome. I can play games on it with other people in the restaurant. I can look up information. I can learn more about the menu. I can add stuff to my order. I can change my order. I can pay. Huh. And all of a sudden, the customer just naturally adapts the technology. It's all touchscreen. looks a lot like a big smartphone. There'll be movies on it soon. They're already, they're already charging an entertainment charge on your check. Dorothy and I played trivia at one of these things. It was a 99-cent entertainment charge. We got charged for playing the trivia game. No one told us. It was probably in the fine print. We didn't see it. <clears throat> the kiosk is taking over the job of the waiter. Fast food, that's done. Fast food is, I mean, right now, I mean, higher-end fast food places, I guess you, I call Panera Bread kind of a, a, you know, somewhere in the middle between fast food and, and a regular restaurant. You know, you go in, there's a whole line of kiosks. You just go make your order. And right now, we've been there, the clientele of Panera prefers the person. There'll be a line that people won't use the kiosks. But then one person peels off and uses the kiosks. They walk up to the thing, they pick their little buzzer thing, and they walk away. 
And everybody in the line turns and looks at it and goes, maybe this, maybe this isn't that bad. Maybe this isn't that bad. And then you start listening. See, if you pay attention, you observe and interact, like we learn in permaculture. You start listening to the customers talk to the waiter or the, the person behind the cash register. And what do you start hearing? What does this come with? Right? They're asking the information that the kiosk would give them. Once they realize that, that's done. So from the fast food to the mid-tier, it's done. The wait staff is not gone, but it's cut in half. More and more of these restaurants, you don't think a robot can cook a Whopper and get it right? You go to a kiosk and you say, no onions. The robot will not put onions on your Whopper. Those jobs are done. But they're, they are now automating the job of things like anesthesiologists. If you ever go into surgery, the person you need to be more concerned about their qualifications than the surgeon himself or herself is the anesthesiologist. It's where a lot of things go wrong with surgery. Too much, too little, whatever. And there's rules they have to follow. The computer will follow the rules. They're automating the position of anesthesiologist. They're developing homes that can be printed in concrete. Five guys pull up, set up a big machine, dump some shit in with a truck, push a button, and it prints a house. The work... See, it's not that there's no jobs anymore. It's all you have to do is eliminate two out of a hundred net. Two out of a hundred net. And we destroy 26 million jobs in a decade. We can't handle that. Not in our current system. And I think 2% is low. If you start looking at the things I just gave you and start asking what's next. Well, people, you know what they always said when I was a kid? It's okay that robots are taking the manufacturing jobs because people will have to fix the robots. Well, now they're making robots that fix robots. They're making robots that build robots. The, the, the sci-fi concept that you're going to have this robot in your house that talks to you and understands what you and interacts with you, they punted that like another you know five decades. That's a lot of work to make that thing work. But to make something can assemble and fix and diagnose, that's actually pretty easy. This is like sinking in slow quicksand. It's so slow that people don't know it's happening. If you're if you were to step into real quicksand, right, you'd probably pull yourself out of it pretty quick because as soon as you put your foot into it, it starts to give way. But imagine that you're standing in an area that's a thousand square miles of imaginary quicksand. Quicksand is very slow. It's going to take a year for the soles of your shoes to be below the, the horizon line. How long would you stand there before you realized what was happening to you? You can see this with a garden. Those of you who have gardens and plants and stuff like that, if they were taken care of when you were gone, you leave for two weeks and you come back. You're like, holy crap, look at this. But over that same two-week period, when you look at it every day, you don't see it. It's the same thing. We have an erosion of what it means to be middle class, not an erosion of middle class. What I call downward class migration. Instead of people falling from middle class to lower middle class and lower middle class to poverty and upper middle class to middle class, you know, and affluent to upper middle class, what we actually have is the entire class structure sliding on the background and leaving a small group way at the top. Actually, what's happening is as the whole class structure shifts and falls, the, the adapter... The person that adapts more smartly than those around them stays 
And actually, the class shift down to them. The upper middle class become affluent. The middle middle class become upper middle class if they adapt. The people that just tread water, that tow the status, that maintain are coming down. You can't maintain anymore. You have to advance and innovate. And this is like slow sinking quicksand. It's why everybody's going to get so screwed by this long term. They won't even know they're screwed until they go to retire at 70 instead of 65 and realize they can't afford to. And there'll be people that end up in that situation that at 68 believed they were going to retire with no problems. Especially if they're 58 right now. If you're 58, you just went, holy shit, is he talking about me? I might be. I don't know. You better do some calculations. And I think the younger you are, the worse it could be or the better it could be. You have more time to adapt, but you also have more time to sink. The young person today that is following the status quo is effed. Okay? Unless they are particularly well suited to it. If you want to go get a chemical engineering degree in college, you can do that. If you are a good student, if that type of education works for you, if you have a aptitude for engineering and specifically chemical engineering, there are going to be amazing opportunities, even when the whole world's falling apart, for a really good chemical engineer, like the top 40% of the class. Because 60% of them will only be there because it ends up on a list somewhere of good professions. But like the top 40% of the people really adapted to that type of learning and that type of mental state, they can do really well there. But the key is going to be to identify that that is or is not the right path for you if you're 20-something. You're going to have to determine that with a lot more accuracy than you did in the past. There's going to be a lot less room for people who just have credentials, get in the door and kind of pick their feet up and put them on the... On the, on the handlebars of the bicycle while other people pedal. Because there's a lot of that in corporate America. If you want to know the real unemployment rate, check this out. Go to a big office, like 500 or more people, and do a real intensive audit, okay? Like the Bobs from Office Space to determine who doesn't really need to be there. You th do you think really that I couldn't go into the average office of 500 employees and cut out 100 and have that company work just as well or better? Do you really believe that? There's, see, there's a size of a company where it gets to a certain size, and there's going to be about 10, 5 to 10% of that company doesn't need to be there, or more, 20%. That's the number I just gave you. 100 out of 500, that's 20% of the workforce. We don't need them. Okay, and if you have a hard time believing that in the private sector, you can make an argument for it. So what is it, 5%? You know, to, well, what is that number? What is the number? Is it is it ten percent? Is it five percent? Still, a lot of people that have jobs that are not needed. What happens when companies start to be forced to make those decisions? Those people go instantly. See, they're employed in the economy, but they're not doing anything other than receiving a paycheck for showing up. They may be. See, you might be one of these people and not know it. Because you might be, just because you work your ass off, doesn't mean that what you're doing actually contributes to anything. There's shitloads of people in American business doing nothing but computing numbers. Well, some guy looks at for like five seconds once a year, throws them aside and bitches at everybody and says to make them different. Do you understand that? The person behind that is unnecessary. And even if we have to have that number, 
one of the companies I, I, I was an owner in, Syrian, has a software product that can go into a telco, like an AT&T wireless, and eliminate 135 jobs like that. The only reason it hasn't done so is for now, the people that make a decision about that are the ones who would have their jobs or the people that work for them have their jobs eliminated. I don't want this because it'll hurt me. That's one sector. That's one place. How many places like that are there? And these are high, high, high paying positions. These are engineering positions. They do these calculations on what the growth of the network is, how, where we have to expand, where we don't have to expand. How do we make sure that we're not spending money in the wrong place? This equipment's expensive, right? These switches are expensive. Okay, go spend $9 million per switch if we don't need them. And we really can't afford to spend it if we don't need it when we needed it somewhere else. And 130 people making a decision about this, crunching all these numbers, one software program. One guy can put the numbers in. Better, more accurate results. How many jobs like that are there out there? See, now we're not talking about burger flippers, are we? We're not even talking about robots. Now we're just talking about the most basic predictive algorithms, the most basic forms of artificial intelligence. Look at teaching. I know people think I beat up on the education system, and when I do that, they think I'm beating up on teachers. I'm not beating up on teachers. I have nothing against teachers, but I'm going to tell you that we have way more teachers than we need. Because we're still teaching with a mentality where we didn't have all this technology. I've often said that the classroom of today is not much different than the classroom of, of 1880. And some people don't want to believe that. But it's not much different than the classroom of 1980. I went to school in the 80s. We had some computers. Not many. We learned basic word processing and some basic coding and stuff like that. But there was no internet. Now there was an internet. Not like we have today. Not... Welcome. You've got mail. Remember that? Wasn't that. There wasn't a place you could just go to a search engine like Lycos, right? Or all the web, long before Google was really the dominant player, and type in, I want to learn about frogs, and find all kinds of websites from people all over the world that talked about frogs. From advanced papers by universities to some little kid doing an experiment with frogs in a pool in their backyard. You could find all that information. That wasn't there. It is now. And what, what, the, what the, the public education system will say, hey, wait a minute. Remember Bill Clinton did? Jack, you made money on this. They put computers in every school, labs everywhere. Kids have access to computers today. Then why are they still sitting in a room with a teacher in front of the room? Think about it this way. Don't, if you'll, those of you in that system, if you will emotionally detach from it for five minutes, you'll understand what I'm saying. It's very difficult to do. The most difficult thing to do is to get somebody to understand something when their livelihood depends on them not understanding it. Up in Sinclair. Okay? That's you. Try not to be that for just five minutes. We hear all the time how certain children in certain school districts get a better education because they live in more affluent societies where there's a higher tax base and therefore the school has more opportunities, pays teachers better, and therefore it has better teachers. Well, if we automate teaching, if we take teaching on the web then the student in the most affluent district still has the most gifted teacher to choose, but the student that lives in the the poverty-stricken, 
hellhole where the school is held together in some ways literally with duct tape has access to the same education. You want equality, it can't be done with a physical location type of school. It can be done with virtual schooling. One teacher can now teach a hundred children. They really can. They really can. And imagine how many things you don't have to deal with anymore. You know, all the, all the discipline issues. You know, kids getting bullied and stuff. You can't do it. You can't, you can't do it. I know cyberbullying is a problem, but is it really? Is it really? All we need to start teaching kids is block, 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 done. How simple is this? When I have a person that I think becomes like a sniper pain in the ass to me, that exists solely to tell me I'm wrong all the time, that exists for no other reason than to pick one pet issue like climate change and follow me and comment on everything every I do, I just block, 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 block. That's not free speech. It's completely free speech. My stuff is my property. You don't get to use it for your free speech. I don't get to write, you're an asshole on your door, and then say you're violating my free speech if you cover it up. You don't get to use my site, my YouTube channel, my Facebook page to do anything that I find to be wrong or insulting. I get to control that. Do you know why kids can't do that? Because they still go back to school and that prick is still there. That's why. Oh, you blocked me. Okay? School's not the real world. So, and, and see, it doesn't matter what you think. This is a natural evolution of education. It's going to happen. Kids are going to start realizing, hey, I learned more from my iPad playing ABC Mouse, by the time I got to kindergarten, I was ahead of everybody that didn't have that. By the time a kid's like in third or fourth grade, he's going to be like, you know what, everybody should have that. We're going to start having kids go home and say, can, can I go to school online, Mom? And Mom's going to be like, I don't think it'll work. And a kid's going to give them a say, hey, look, here's how it works. The kids are the real customers in this, guys. They're going to drag it there. These kids know more about computers by the time they're 12 than you knew by the time you were 25. That's reality. So how many jobs does that eliminate? What if we just eliminate 20% of all jobs in the public education sector? What's that look like? See, let's not even go with the Hail Mary here. Let's just talk about next 10 years, 20% of education jobs are gone. By the way, I'm including universities. I am absolutely including universities. Well, we'll still need the teachers to grade stuff. Maybe we'll start figuring out how to grade students on performance instead of how they answer your question. Because they're not the same thing. I can tell you exactly how to build a house. But, doesn't mean I can build a house. And I would probably learn more from building a house than listening to someone that knew how to build a house tell me how to build a house. This is where we're headed. And it's, it's really exciting if you think about it. But I'm going to give you some words of advice that are pretty old right now. I'm going to read something to you from Rudyard Kipling. And if you're going to adapt to this, this is how you're going to have to think, friends. In fact, I found a version of this read by somebody who can read poetry a lot better than me, so I'm just going to play it for you. If, by Rudyard Kipling... If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated 
don't give way to hating. And yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose, and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except will, which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Well, I'm glad I found that version um, with someone to read it, because um, I think I'm a pretty good speaker, but I don't think I'm a very good dramatic reader. And and that, when I listened to that, that really came alive for me. I, I've loved that poem since I was a little boy, and I first found it in a book in a library at school. And I've always really tried to live my life by a lot of the advice in that poem, but I don't think I've ever actually heard it read dramatically, and I kind of sad that it took me until my 40s to hear it, because it, it has a lot of meaning, doesn't it? And I want you to think about something. It was written in 1895. 1895. I, I don't think I could give the youth of today better advice than what's in that poem, those few lines, those few stanzas. It's everything you need to know to live life to the fullest. And I, I do have an absolute 100% favorite line in it. And that is, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. I've been trying to teach you guys that since I got started with this show. That every single day you wake up with a potential to what you can get done. And at the end of the day, you have a reality of what you did get done. And that while we have to have balance, we have to have recreation and leisure and things like that. So much of us actually spend energy on things that are wasted. And we waste time on a minute instead of getting 60 seconds worth of distance run. We worry about things that we cannot change and cannot influence. We give the best of our lives. We give the best of our lives to the things that won't matter when we're dead. We waste our freaking dash. The dash they put between the year of your birth and the year you die on a plaque somewhere where your ashes are or your body lays. We waste our dash. It's sinful. 
It's not a word you'll hear often from me. I'm not a religious guy. But to squander the reality of opportunity that exists for us today. To waste it worrying about which thief will steal from us next because of the next election when you aren't going to change one single thing about the outcome of the next election. You will not. How many hours... How many of those hours add up to days? How many of those days add up to weeks in the lives of the average American pushing a string, struggling like a fly at a closed window, doing everything it can for freedom and believing that freedom is just beyond that pane of the glass and being right, but simply knowing that it cannot move the pane of glass. And just across the room is another window wide open, And instead of turning away from the impossible and turning to the opportunity to to achieve what seems impossible, the fly ends up dead on its back in front of the glass pane. And when you find him there, you have no sympathy, you don't care, you wipe him away into the dustbin, and off he goes to be composted into the earth. And that is human life for so many today. At a time when our opportunities, if you've been paying attention to the history segments, exceed anything that our ancestors just ten generations ago could even imagine or conceive of. And here we sit, squandering it, arguing with each other over which criminal family will run our lives. If you do that in this shifting economy, it will gut you. It will strip from you every bit of what makes you wonderful and leave you old and miserable and tired and ready to die. If you turn away from it and realize your potential to succeed and achieve, you won't be ready to go when it's time, but at least you'll be at peace with it. Assuming we get there. I mean, we could all be hit by a gravel truck tomorrow. That's something we just have to accept as fatalist human beings, as mortal beings. But I, I hope that when I'm dead, I'm an old man, and I got to taste a good beverage on my lift, lips, a grafting knife in my hand and seeds in my pockets, and trees that will outlive me by centuries, that maybe my, my great-great-grandson will sit under. That's my thing. Maybe it's not yours, but find your thing. Because this coming tidal wave, you can either be buried by it or you can surf on it. Those are going to be your choices. And even if you surf on it, you're going to get bashed into the coral. But if you got the board, at least you can climb back onto it, dust yourself off, and get going again. Those of you that are young, you have so much opportunity in this. And you have the most potential to be hurt because the road is harder for you than for me or for people 20 years older than me. It is harder for you to be 18 today than it was for me to be 18 in 1985. Boo, wah, hiss, get over it, pick up shit and get going because ain't nobody going to do it for you. And the older generation doesn't understand. Well, some of us do, but I can't help you anyway by understanding. Does me understanding your plight actually help you? might make you feel better, but it doesn't help you. You know what helps you? Being willing to step outside of yourself long enough to look at yourself from behind and metaphorically kick yourself in the freaking ass and get shit done. Because that's what we need to do. 
I personally think one of the most amazing opportunities going forward is going to be investing your time, effort, talents, and education in ecologically sound means of production. Whether it's food, whether it's energy, it doesn't matter. To focus on learning to develop decentralized models. So as the centralized system fails, there's a place for people to go. And I think we don't even know what we don't know about simple 10,000-year-old technologies right now. As much as we're doing in the worlds of ecological agriculture and, and permaculture and all of those things, we don't even know what we don't know yet. We haven't even cracked the skin of the potential of the organism yet. We don't even know what guys like Alan Savory have done with grazing. It's only been done in little bitty areas. What would happen if we did it on a continental scale? Could it be done? Yes. What would it mean? What would it mean? This is the reality. Humankind is either going to evolve its way into a state of true, sustainable, natural abundance or crash and burn. The good news is I think we'll get there eventually. I don't know how much damage will be done in the process, but I think the organism is... There's never been a, a being we know of as creative and innovative as the human. Now, the people in power have done a lot to dumb down people, but I think people are beginning to resent that. People are starting to say, people are stupid, and they're realizing I'm people. Maybe I'm being stupid like the rest of them, and I just can't see it. Maybe I need to stop being stupid. That's the, that is a great act of rebellion and insurrection. When you say, I refuse to be stupid, I refuse to believe what you tell me, I will ask my own questions, define my own answers, and take my own actions based on them. That is the biggest act of insurrection you could possibly, possibly stand up against society with. Please do it. Please do it. No matter how bad I made you feel at the beginning of today's show, 26 million jobs gone in the next 10 years, I think it's real, guys. In spite of everything, build, invest smartly, learn, grow, create, and get you done. You have to. You have to, because no one else is going to do it. Not for you, anyway. I'm going to do it for me. And if I can be an example to you, if I can help you, I will. But how many people can I help? You know? How much good can I do for other people? And I've learned over the years, the best thing I can do for somebody that has an opportunity to do something, is say, hey, here's what I would do. Don't necessarily do it the way I say to do it, but this is just what I see. Get shit done, and if they start to succeed, tell people, hey, this guy's getting shit done. Go look at what he's doing, and give them a little springboard of exposure, and walk away. When I try to make something work for somebody, I destroy it. I take away their burning, yearning desire to do it, or I believe it's there when it isn't. The most successful people I've helped in the last eight years with this show are the people that I've said, hey, let me get you off the ground, goodbye. The people I've taken on as long-term partners, hasn't worked out. It just hasn't. And I understand why. You can't give someone a crutch and expect them to run 100 meters. You want to get somebody to run 100 meters that uses a crutch, you take the crutch away. You say, fall down and get up. Get up again. Get up again. Get up again. I fell. Good. It's dirt. It doesn't hurt that bad. Get up. Go. Sooner or later, they can run 100 meters. And they can run 500. And they can run a mile. To the point where you, 
the coach can't even keep up with them anymore. If you're not teaching people to be better than you, you're not a good teacher. That's how you know if you're a good teacher. I don't care if you're teaching English. I don't care if you're teaching algebra. I don't care if you're teaching woodworking. I don't care what you're doing. If your students don't eventually move past your ability, you're a shitty teacher. <laughs> But man, if you can have students surpass you, you're an excellent teacher. And if you're good at what you do and your students can surpass you quickly, you're a master teacher. You're a master teacher. If you're really good at what you teach, what you're teaching should be absorbed by a student if the student's motivated to the point where they take it in. And because they have the benefit of your knowledge and the forward thinking of a different point of view, they should be able to go past you with it. And there's so much opportunity because of that. Because every problem that we can look at in the future represents an opportunity if you can solve it. An energy shortage is an opportunity. A cost of energy that exceeds the access by individuals is an opportunity. A food shortage is an opportunity. Especially if you are putting the solution in place before the crisis hits critical. And you know what? I want you to understand something. I come at what I tell you guys from a viewpoint of a 40-year-old man, mid-40s. And I come at it from a standpoint of somebody that carries very much about nature and the environment and loves planting and loves working with animals and, and, and wants to have land and likes to hunt and fish. That's my viewpoint. Some of you love what I do, but that's not you. Good. You take this concept into the world where it matters to you and you make it work. That's what this is all about because the truth is we are the economy. We are what creates value. The problem with the economy is too many of us have been lied to for so long, we actually believe that we're not valuable. We actually believe that we're worthless. That's what society is saying to somebody when they say, you know what, here's a $1,200 check to live on for the month, here's a house to live in, here's your kids, you can take care of them, here's some food stamps, don't do anything. You suck so bad, you need us to provide for you. By the way, anytime you try to get out of this situation, okay, we'll make it harder for you while you're doing it. Instead of making it easier. And instead of putting a ladder there for you, saying, here's a base, here's the ladder, start climbing the ladder. When you get to the top of the ladder, you're out of the pit, then we'll cut you off. As soon as you go up the first rung of the ladder, we're going to like start smacking the ladder with a hammer. That's how welfare works in this country. You get halfway up the ladder, man, we're just going to cut the bottom of the ladder off. You better climb fast. You're going to fall back in the pit. And when you get back in the pit, this time we're not going to help you no more. Because you've expired your benefits. And we wonder why we haven't. The truth is we are the value of the economy. All wealth in the world comes from natural systems. And we are the innovators that channel that wealth, if we're intelligent, into ways that function, that add value. And allow for the exchange of ideas and services and goods and food and product. We are the economy. And I have a special song for you today. From Chris LeDoux once again. It kind of talks about that. If you've heard this song before, maybe you'll hear it in a new way. It's called Working Man's Dollar. It's about the difference between the digital dollars on Wall Street and the ones in the pockets of the old blue jeans of a working man. But what you'll actually understand if you listen to this is that $1 goes from hand to hand to hand, 
from hand to calloused hand. It doesn't do the work of a dollar. It does the work of hundreds of dollars. How is that possible? Because it's handed from one hand to the other. It's nothing but a symbol for the exchange of value. The dollar is meaningless. The value it represents is what matters. And the value it represents is designed to give confidence that you and I will exchange value for value. And if we ever actually evolve to a point where we understand that intrinsically as beings, we won't need dollars anymore. That's a society that likely none of us will ever see, other than maybe a microcosm of it. Some sort of small group that's put together to prove that it can be done. But you won't see the global economy do that. That's what we're evolving to. Figure out how to help society take a step in that direction. Figure out how to deal and mitigate, deal with and mitigate disasters. Your opportunity is almost unlimited. And maybe instead of having a working man's dollar, you'll have a few working man's dollars. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Well, I'm just a working man's dollar in the pocket of his old blue jeans. I ain't like my Wall Street brother. He's in the banks of shiny and clean. Well, I'm faded and I'm wrinkled, tattered and stained with sweat. But I'm the first one called when Uncle Sam needs a hand with a national debt. I've been wages for the farmhand, for driving an old John Deere. I've been laid on a bar in a tavern to buy a working man an ice cold beer. I've been tipped to a truck stop waitress. Paper I was torn And in the hand of a child I was laid on a plate in the church On a Sunday morning Well they say I'm the root of all evil I bring lust, power and greed But this working man's dollar Only buys the things A working man really needs Say I'm worth about 50 cents in this modern inflated age But don't tell that to the young man slaving to make it on a minimum wage Or that single working mother She's been scraping to make ends meet To make a house a home and keep food on the table And shoes on her baby's feet Well I know my days are numbered Getting threadbare and wearing thin And they'll replace me with another But I'd do it all again Cause I've seen this great big country Pass from hand to calloused hand And I've got to say that I'm mighty proud That I belong to the working man well, They say I'm the root of all evil I bring lust, power and greed But this working man's dollar only buys the thing working man really needs